Welcome to the Good Fight Radio Show, a program dedicated to bringing you vital and uncompromised truths that you won't hear in the mainstream media, discussing contemporary issues in light of the Bible and how these issues relate to family, culture, and the church. The heart of this show is to glorify Jesus Christ and expose the works of darkness as he is commanded in Ephesians 5.11. Now here's your host, Good Fight Ministries' own Chad Davidson. I think this next question, it, it lines up really well with us because it is important also to recognize when it comes to sin and how serious sin is, but it's also important to not bring this to this the pendulum swing. So I think this question will be really good for this show specifically to hopefully kind of steer it in a direction that kind of helps some clarification. So I think people will be blessed by this, and this will be more of a practical question. This one is also from one of our Patreons. This is from Angelique McVeigh, and she says, Hello, I'm not sure if you have all done a podcast or sermon on this yet, but I've been struggling with verses like 1 John 3.9. Just a second. We actually do talk on it a lot. I don't know if we've talked about it specifically in 1 John, but we bring up this scenario a lot, and we've talked to a lot of people on this as well. But here's what she says. She says, which says, no one born again will continue sinning. Don't we all still struggle with sin even after being saved? Or am I not born again if I still sin? Or is there a difference between willful sin and struggling slash wrestling with sin or being unaware or unconvicted of sin? I know some Christians believe in sinless perfectionism, and I'd love if you all would do a podcast on this as I'm sure it's something a lot of Christians struggle with. I know we can't use God's grace as a license for morality, but even with the Spirit in us, don't we all struggle with our corrupt flesh? Thank you, brothers and sisters, for all you do. Yeah, that's a great question, yeah. uh, especially regarding looking at First John 3.9. And Angelique, actually, hearing her how she expresses herself in the question, uh, it sounds like she actually has a pretty good handle on understanding that, yes, uh, we're not perfect yet, and there's a struggle with sin. And we don't use grace as a license, and we continue in the faith. But there's still a battle we have with our flesh, and uh, those would be our our sentiments based on the biblical teaching of Jesus and the apostles and the prophets as well. Uh, so I think she's got a good handle on it. But let's address it more specifically. If we are to take First John three nine and come to the conclusion uh, that that means that we are perfect and sinless, because it says he uh, that's born of God does not sin. Uh, the Greek, it's actually, there's there's a continuous tense there, and that's why most translations, like the NASB, talks about when uh, he that's born of God doesn't continue or does not practice sin uh, as as a habitual rebellion against God, as one who's in rebellion against God. In fact, the, couple, the next verse makes it very clear that if you're born again, yes, you aren't in rebellion to God. It goes on to say that, you know, those that are born of God, it talks about how uh, they're, uh, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. They're, they're manifest. They're those who practice righteousness are of God, and those who do not practice righteousness are of the devil, it says, and those who don't love their brethren and so forth. So we have to also, we have to, we have to realize that First John is actually between two, you know, opposite roads. Uh, you know, it, it comes against the idea of license. I believe John had a lot of the Gnostics in mind who were redefining even just sin out of existence because I don't got to get too deep into Gnosticism here. But in First John, uh, he's dealing with those who believe that they don't have to be concerned about how they walk morally and so forth. Uh, they are actually, you know, repudiating the blood of Christ and so forth. They were insurrectionists. But it's important to understand the context here is John is not saying, uh, as some take him to be saying, 
that you can be, you know, sinfully perfect and that Christians will be perfect and have sinless uh, perfection. And there's different definitions, I must say, in the Wesleyan camp as to what sinless perfection is. A Wesley who taught sinless perfection fired a bunch of his uh, leaders who taught an absolute sinless perfectionism that they had arrived and they never had sinned and, you know, they were perfect. And by the way, if we're teaching uh, that 1 John 3, 9 means that believers are perfect and they don't still fall into, they don't still fall short of God's glory in, in ways, uh, that basically calls God a liar. In fact, that calls, that's making God a liar, according to the same book, just a little bit earlier in 1 John chapter 1, verse 8, where he says, he that says he's without sin or or doesn't sin, it's in the present tense, I believe, there, uh, is deceiving himself and is making God a liar. And just before that, in 1 John 1, 7, the verse before that, that's, uh, I believe, verse 8, actually. In verse 7, he says, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So in other words, as we're walking in the light, right, going forward in Jesus, guess what? There's still imperfection. There's still sin because that's why we need to continue to be cleansed by the blood of Jesus. I like that because it shows the, the biblical balance that God is not saying, hey, you, you've reached a point where you're absolutely perfect. He's saying, hey, as you walk in the light, he's light. You continue to walk in the light. His blood cleanses you from all sin. In other words, guess what? There's still some shortcomings because we're still praying the Lord's Prayer. Give us this, our Father who art in heaven, you know, and so forth. Give us this day our, what? Daily bread. It's like a daily type prayer, right? At least the model of that prayer. And what is part of that daily prayer? Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. So why am I praying that? In fact, I'd have to change that if I felt I've arrived and, and I'm absolutely perfect now in my morality and can't grow to become any more like Jesus because Jesus could look next to me and say, wow, you're just as righteous as I am as far as your practice and you just haven't slipped in a year and a half. Wow. And I'm like, our Father, oh, when I get to that part, not forgive us our sins. Forgive them their sins, Lord, uh, you know, as they forgive others. I don't have to pray. Forgive us our sins. Uh, Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 4, I believe it is, is it talks about coming into the throne of grace with confidence, right? To seek, uh, you know, seek grace in time of need, mercy in time of need. Uh, we never arrive until Jesus comes as far as our practice goes. You know, we, we, we walk in holiness as Christians, but James 3.1 says we all stumble in many ways. In 1 John, at the very end of his epistle, he says, little children, keep yourselves from idols. But then he himself falls before the angel two different times in the book of Revelation to worship an angel and is rebuked for it. In other words, guess what? John was a holy guy, man. But guess what? We always have to take heed lest, uh, when we stand lest we fall. And on our best day, our best day, I mean, John chapter 13, verse 34, you know, Jesus said uh, that, you know, gave us a new commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Can any of you actually say that you love one another in the same exact way that Jesus loved others. Because he's the model. He loved us perfectly. And you know what? I strive, I cry out daily. It's one of my main prayers throughout my Christian walk is, Lord, help me love you with my whole heart, soul, strength, and mind. Help me love my neighbor as myself. Help me love my wife Christ as Christ loved the church, Father. Help me love my children, Lord, dearly. Help me love my brethren, First Peter says, fervently, you know, with, with a burning fervency. Help me love my enemies, Lord. You know, help me love my neighbors. So all those things, that's my prayer because we're called to walk in love and love keeps the moral law of God. So that's why I pray because I want to be obedient. I want to reflect him. But at the same time, the closer you get to him 
in your prayer life, the more you seek him, the more you get on your knees and cry out to him, the more you realize how sinful you are. The more I remember as a new Christian, man, I thought I was doing pretty good. I was, you know, seeking the Lord. I was seeking to obey him and everything else. Then I get on my knees before the Lord, my bedside and cry out to him. And man, I started, he started revealing places in my heart that need to be changed. Maybe a joke I had told that was not dirty. He, nobody would probably make things dirty, but displeased him. Or somebody that I needed to give a call to, or I just all of a sudden see things in my heart that were just off, areas of pride, areas of whatever that needed to, needed to be exposed, you know? And I've never, and by the way, I've grown a lot, man. My tongue and everything else compared to when I was a brand new Christian. But guess what? Even now, when I get close to the Lord, I seek him, I read his word, man, I see that, man, there's some, there's some things that need to be cleaned up. I need to become more like Jesus. I haven't loved perfectly today. So uh, now some say, well, if you don't believe in sinless perfection, uh, then, you know, that's, you know, that's basically like a license. Um, no, it's biblical. You know, is Jesus teaching a license? You know, mm-hmm. no. Is, is the apostle James, when he says we all still in many ways teaching a license? No, James is a preacher of holiness, you know. Uh, basically, and I, I use the example, you know, no batter goes up in MLB, in Major League Baseball, goes up to the plate uh, thinking that he's going to bat 1,000 all year long. I mean, Chad's far more, I'm not a huge baseball fan, but <laughs> Chad's a big baseball fan. But would you agree that they all know, you know, at the end of the year, I'm sure I'm not going to be batting 1,000. But you know what? Pretty much every player that goes up to bat doesn't think, you know, since I'm not going to bat 1,000, I might as well just strike out. I might as well just take pitches, not even speak. I might as well kind of step out of the batter box or, or just make sure I don't get hit. No, they go up doing their best to get a hit. Doesn't mean since, since I know that I'm not going to bat 1,000, doesn't mean I don't try with all my heart and all my might to, to seek the Lord and, and, and want to be what he's called me to be. But guess what? In that trying, in that going forward and seeking to uh, please him, I know ultimately I please him ultimately through what Jesus did on the cross. He pleases him as through the gospel. But I know I'm changed by the gospel. I'm changed by the power of the Holy Spirit. I've been transformed and we're becoming more and more like him. So that's very important to understand. But it's also important to understand that First John itself refutes, the book of First John refutes the idea of sinless perfection and the idea that there's no struggle in our walks to be like the Lord. You don't only have 1 John 1, uh, 7 and 8, but verse 9, uh, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Uh, we have 2 John chapter, or 1 John, I'm sorry, chapter 2, verse 1. I write these things that you don't sin, but if any of you do sin, you have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. You see, so he recognizes, he's trying to keep people us from sin, and we preach in such a way, don't sin. It's destructive. It destroys you. It destroys the temple of God at, at times, depending on sin. destroys your family members. destroys others around you. It's huge. It's ugly. It's wicked. It breaks, most of all, the heart of God. It flings arrows into his heart. So we say stay away from sin. But at the same time, we recognize in 1 John chapter 1, you say you're without sin, you're a deceiver, you're, and you're making God a liar. 1 John chapter 2, uh, I write these things that you don't sin, but if anyone does sin, he has an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. 1 John chapter 5, verse 16. Uh, it talks about brothers committing sin unto death and a sin that is not unto death. Showing that brothers can sin in a woefully wicked way to where uh, they harden their hearts so much that they they won't get right with God because they become so wicked. I believe that's the biblical paradigm with First John 5, 16. And uh, there's brothers don't, that don't sin unto death and you shall pray for them and they shall receive life uh, because they aren't involved in uh, inevitable, uh, perpetual resistance to God in their hearts. So, First John itself recognizes this capacity. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Why does he say, little children, keep yourselves from idols? Uh, if the children of God, he's talking about born again ones, the context there, 
aren't don't have the proclivity to have to watch out for idolatry because there is still that struggle as her sister brought up. And that's in first that's in Galatians chapter five, uh, verse uh, seventeen. There, uh, verse sixteen, I believe, says, "Walk in the Spirit; you will not fulfill the desires of the flesh." So we need to walk in the Spirit and rely on the power of the Holy Spirit and imitate Jesus and obey His Word and pray for strength. Because in verse seventeen, it goes on to talk about in eighteen, God goes on to talk about this struggle that the Spirit against the flesh, the flesh against the Spirit. The struggle is not Romans 7. That's Paul before Christ, and we just covered this, that, in two messages. Read, Watch part one and part two uh, on, on, on a Sunday and then a Wednesday, just a few weeks back. You'll be blown away. But there is this Christian struggle. That is in Galatians chapter 5. It's the Holy Spirit in us against our flesh. And Jesus said, you know, pray that you don't enter temptation. The Spirit's willing, the flesh is weak. Our spirits need to say yes to His Spirit and pray to be filled with His Spirit so we don't walk in the flesh. Then in verses 19 through 21, He gives a list of wicked lifestyles. You know, he talks about things like drunkenness and, and sorcery and just, uh, you know, evil hearts, jealousies and things like that. And people that get caught up in that as a habitual thing when they're in rebellion to God. And he says, I warned you before, even as I warned you before, uh, I warn you now, as I warned you before, know for certain that those that practice these things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And he goes on to say that those who belong to Christ, Christians, genuine believers, have crucified the flesh with his affections and desires. So when we come to Christ, we take up our cross and we deny ourselves. We say, not my will, but your will be done. And we say, I'm no longer going to be in a path of rebellion, drunken debauchery, partying and drugs and chasing women or men or whatever you had done before in the past and and being caught up in malice and anger and unforgiveness and bitterness and hatred. But now I'm going to be like Jesus. I'm going to follow him. So true, genuine Christians are following Christ and have, as Paul says, after he talks about this struggle, that those who belong to Christ, this is in the aorist, or past tense in the Greek, right? It says, have crucified the flesh with its affections and its desires. So those old affections that I used to have to where I wanted to just get stoned, man. I wanted to do do drugs. I wanted to chase women. I wanted to uh, brawl. I wanted to do, you know, was filled with whatever I wanted to do myself. When I became a Christian, that was no longer my heart and my will. Now, guess what? Even though that was no longer my heart will, it doesn't mean the temptation wasn't there. doesn't mean the enemy didn't knock and say, hey, Joe, let that old man that you've crucified now be resurrected. That's going to happen every day. The enemy's going to try to that. But you have to just say, no, I'm on the path of righteousness. I'm going to seek him. In the midst of that, there will be times that you fall short. Let me read some verses to you that make it real clear. First Kings 18.46 for says, For there is no one who does not sin. Ecclesiastes 7.20 says, Indeed, there is not a righteous man on earth who continually does good and who never sins. Thus saith the word of God. Proverbs 20, verse 9, who can say, I've kept my heart pure, I am clean, and without sin. Wow. You know, uh, over and over again, we, we read scriptures like this. And so it's important to understand, yes, there is a struggle, but God calls us to have victory. But again, and praise God, you pointed that out, sister, that yeah, there is a struggle, but God does not want us to use that as a license. Say, well, this is a struggle. There's a difference between struggling and saying no and falling short at times, saying, God, have mercy. I'll, I'll kind of just sum it up with this, is that the true Christian walk Sin should be the exception, okay, not the rule. When you don't know Jesus, the rule of your life is just rebellion. When you know Jesus and you're following him, you're following him. And yeah, you're going to fall short at times as you seek to follow him because we, we haven't arrived yet. We're still growing. A beautiful Christian word, you can't grow if you're already perfect. We're growing in Christ. The key is keep growing in Jesus. And let this in the days ahead be better than the days in the past because you're growing in him. Amen. Yeah, I think that's that's huge. And I think one of the greatest things when you read 1 John, uh, specifically chapter 3, is it gives you an understanding 
that these are, I, I believe that they're the narrative of a person's life. When sin is the narrative of a person's life, we know that that's the hallmark of an unbeliever. When sin is not the narrative of that person's life, we realize that is the hallmark of a believer. Because the difference would be, I believe conviction of sin is a huge thing because the Holy Holy Spirit comes and convicts the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. You have the Holy Spirit inside of you. You're going to be convicted of sin. So, you know, I equate sin, and don't worry, the Word of God equates it for much worse, but sin, to me, would be like you stepping in or getting dog poop on your arm, and you got it on you, you wash it off. You don't say, let me rub it on my face. This will feel so much better, right? There's a big, big difference, and it's very similar to the pig going back and wallowing in the mire, or the dog going back to its vomit, as mentioned in Second Peter. Is that the Practice, narrative? Yeah. Is that the narrative of your life? That's what you have to check out. And if it's not, and and I think Job, you know, obviously hit the nail on the head here when he said, you know, the more and more he seeks God, I think it's that Isaiah moment, you know, yeah. you know, the woe is them as woe is them. And then he goes and he sees the courtroom and he goes, <laughs> the throne room, I'm sorry. And he says, woe is me. I am undone, Amen. you know? So I, I think that Amen. is the difference there. So we have another question from a wonderful patron from Melissa Henricks. And this question, once again, these are sociological questions. So it continues in the same vein. And it says, yes, I have a question. A lady told me that turning away and falling away from God are two different directions. She says that we all fall away and are far from God at times, but are still saved, secure in Christ. She seems to think that turning away from Jesus is what people who never knew him do. Is there a difference? So it's, it's a little bit of a semantical thing maybe with yeah. this gal, because she's, you know, and praise the Lord, that's a great question, sister. It sounds like the gal you're talking to is maybe, you know, using Scripture as a license a little bit by saying, it's one thing to say we all sin. We all have fallen short of God's glory. None of us are perfect. None of us love perfectly like Jesus loves. That's different than saying we all fall away. Uh, the, the Bible doesn't describe falling short of God's glory. Uh, it doesn't equate that with actual apostasy and falling away from the Lord. Those are different categories, at least uh when we look at the scripture, we can say, yeah, we all fall short, fall short. So the way we all fall away. Uh, but when the Bible talks about falling away, you know, apostasia and other words that are, that are I think, epistemia, just different words that are translated falling away, uh, it's typically dealing with people who have committed apostasy, those who have, have turned uh, from the Lord. And uh, it's not as though you could fall away, but not turn from the Lord. Either way, you're turning from the Lord, whether you've Turn from the Lord or fallen away in regard to your behavior, the prodigal son. And no one could say he was never really a son. And when he came back, he said, my son was lost, but now he's found. Talking about the last question, you know, wallowing with the pigs in the mire. Uh, he was lost, but now he's found. He was dead, but now he's alive. And his, you know, he didn't deny that the, his father existed. But the Bible says we can profess to know him, but fireworks deny him. Titus 1.16, you can deny the father by your behavior and he did. Uh, he was denying, you know, I mean, it's reprehensible. But when he came back, his father loved him. And he loved him when he was gone. His heart ached for him, I'm sure, because it's the father's heart. And, and he raced toward him and, and, and kissed him and so forth. But it was, it was a, he had truly turned away from his father. You see, they're not two different directions. You can't fall away and turn away and those be two different directions. They're both downward. They're both away from our, our God. So you can fall away when it comes to your, your walk with God. 
And you can follow away when it comes to doctrinal issues, which also has to do, by the way, with our walk with God. Uh, and I'll give you examples. Is is uh, In Hebrews chapter 3, he says, See to it that none of you are hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. He talks about, uh, and have fallen away from the living God. Brethren, brethren, fellow Christians. He addresses them in chapter Hebrews 3, 1 as holy brethren, uh, partakers of the heavenly calling. And then in 3, 12, he, he talks to them about seeing to it that, you know, none of them uh, are hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, 12, 13, and 14 there, and falling away from the living God. So sin can cause your heart to become hardened, and you can fall away from the living God. And that context is not, they were never right, they were never Christians in the first place. He's addressing holy brethren there, okay? Uh, that's, a, that's not of non-believers. And also, he addresses Christians with falling away in regard to doctrine. I think that's key as well. Hebrews chapter, I'm sorry, 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Uh, the first few verses are like verses uh, 2 and 3 there. That's where Paul says he wanted to present them, the church at Corinth, as a chaste virgin to the Lord. He betrothed them to become a chaste virgin, but he said he's concerned that they would believe in a different Jesus and a different gospel, receive a different spirit. And he says that he wants to present them as a chaste virgin, but he's, he wants to make sure, he says, that they don't lose their simple devotion to Christ for another Jesus and so forth. So they, they have a simple devotion to Christ. They are part of the bride at that point, but he's warning that that simple devotion can grow cold. And in the Church of Galatia, I mean, that's quite clear because in Galatians chapter 5, the Judaizers had come into the Church of Galatia and they were teaching that you had to go back to the law of Moses, remember? You had to keep the Sabbath, you know, chapter 4, verse 9, uh, the new moons and all that stuff, and and you had to be circumcised. And uh, Paul is warning genuine, blood-bought, born-again Christians about not falling away or turning away from Christ. And he says, stand fast in verse 1 of chapter 5 in the freedom wherewith Christ has set you free. Uh, it's a position there. In other words, they're free. You're free. Doesn't say, well, if you were really saved. No, he says, stand fast in the freedom with Christ has set you free and don't be entangled again in the yoke of bondage. So in other words, again, meaning a second time. And then he goes on to say that, uh, you know, if they're circumcised, they go back to circumcision, Christ will profit you nothing. In fact, he says this, he says, uh, if they go back that route, for those who are going back to that route in the present tense, he says, you have been severed from the Christ. Literally in the Greek, you have been abolished is what the Greek word means. It's hard to translate that word, though. It means you have been severed from the Christ. You've been cut off from the Christ, and you have fallen from grace. Now, you can't say if you fall away, you're still saved there because they've been severed from Christ at that point, and they're no longer free in Christ, and uh, their very souls are in jeopardy. You can't say, I mean, remember King, King Asa? It yeah. said, you know, he followed the Lord with all his heart. I mean, yeah. it doesn't say that about many, very many people. And then guess what? He's warned. But if you forsake me, I'm going to forsake you, the Lord tells him. And what does he do? He forsakes the Lord. The Lord loves those that belong to him. He disciplines him. He gives him a foot disease. It says even after the foot disease, he still didn't repent. And he died in his sin, it says. So don't say that. It's a lie to say that, well, if you're ever saved, you'll always love God. You won't ever fall away. That's not biblical. That does not uh, fit within the paradigm of the canon of Scripture. And it's seriously a serious false doctrine because then people don't take sin seriously. Or they wonder if they're Calvinists, if they've ever really been saved in the first place, or if they're one of the elect and God ever really wanted them to be saved. Fatalism. Yeah, amen. And and I, I'm going to ask a quick question that came in on the chat real quick, so we won't be pulling up one. But I did see Marissa, who actually is a patron, patron as well. 
on our patreon.com slash goodfight page. And she had asked, and I know we've done shows on it. So actually, Lorena, I see you on there moderating. If you could find a couple of the shows we've done on First John 2.19, but maybe the Reader's Digest version of how would you answer a Calvinist who says that First John 2.19 quite clearly says that they went they went out from us because they were never of us. So therefore, I take that text, apply it to all of Scripture, and say that if anyone ever leaves, it means they were never actually a part of the body of Christ. Yeah, and I'm glad, Chad, you said a Reader's Digest version because we have a whole uh, couple, I and mean, go maybe Lorena could go to the, the most recent teaching we did on that, and that was probably about four or five months ago. So uh, those who'd been with us during that time, they won't hear all the same uh, response. But I'm glad that question came in. It's a great question. But uh, <laughs> Chad uh, couched it in a very, uh, uh, Chad kind of gave the answer, you know, when you asked the question, <laughs> is that it obviously doesn't apply to everybody. In fact, A.T. Robertson, I don't have time to get into it. I don't even go get into this in the other uh, shows we've done on this. But A.T. Robertson shows and other uh, Greek exegetes, some of the top Greek exegetes have shown that that could be understood a totally different way even in the Greek. But let's just take it the way it's commonly translated, uh, that they were not really of us. If they'd been with uh, of us, they would, you know, continue with us is I say things like that all the time as a pastor. You know, I talk about, uh, let's let's say a bunch of New Agers came into the fellowship and they try to get people to follow some prophetess down the street who was channeling entities, right? And and we were opposed to them and saying, you know, these, these gals are false prophetesses and these guys that are with them are false prophets because they're claiming to hear from God and they're claiming to have visions. They want us to go listen to St. Germain channel, you know, this particular uh, person down the street. And then we oppose them, and then they leave. And then I say, hey, you know what? Those guys were never part of our fellowship. They're never part. They're not even Christians, you know. Because when we corrected them, if they were Christians, they would have stayed here, you know. They would have accepted the correction, but they want nothing to do with Jesus. Now, by saying that, does that mean that anybody who ever struggles with sin and falls away or falls into false doctrine was never really a Christian? Am I saying that? No. The context of First John is that he's dealing with certain antichrists. You have to read the verse before and after. It's just right there in the context. He's talking about Antichrist, and he says of these Antichrists, they were not of us. Uh, if they had been of us, they would have remained with us because John is checking them. He was dealing with Gnosticism in the first century. That does not mean, okay, this is very important to understand, that does not mean that John's not concerned about the salvation of the genuine believers in that assembly. We know that very well because just a couple verses later, in verse 24 through 26, he says to the little children in the faith, those born-again ones, children of God, let that remain in you, which you heard from the beginning. What was that? The gospel. If what you heard from the beginning remains in you, you also will continue in the Father and in the Son and receive the promise of eternal life. So he very clearly lets them know that they, the genuine believers, that they need to continue the faith. And then he says in verse 26, that's verse 24 and 25, I believe. Then in verse 26, he says, I'm writing these things concerning those who are seeking to seduce you. In other words, there's the Antichrist people that they want to apply to everybody and say, well, if you ever fall away, you were just you were never of him. No, he's talking about this specific group that had come into the church. And they ignore a couple verses later, which does apply to genuine believers, the warning that we're not to we're to make sure that we are not seduced by these false teachers and other false teaching as true born-again ones, so that we can continue in the Father and the Son and through abiding in our faith in the Lord and what we've heard the gospel receive eternal life. That's super clear. So you have to ignore the context of the passage. You have to ignore the warning that follows up on it. You have to ignore 1 John 5, 16 and 17, which warns about how a brother can commit sin unto eternal death, uh, and whereby he does not repent and come back 
Uh, you have to ignore First John as a whole. So uh, we could go on and on about that. That was my Reader's Digest version because my main, mind is racing right now. I want to go other places. But I'm going to stop right there. <laughs> um, you know what? And I will only piggyback just because it helps me answer one question that Praise came in. But I'm going to just do some fill in there just from because I know one text that also will be used alongside of it happens to be Matthew 7, 21 to 23, where Jesus says, of those who call Lord, Lord, he says, I never knew you. And so those two verses are typically piggyback one with another. And we had a question, and this one is in regards to actually knowing you are saved and wondering, but what about these people that may be confused and deceived in Matthew 7, 21 through 23? I just want to point out for this sister, Jane Silvers, it's with a Y, so it threw me off for a second. But Jane Silvers, I just want to point out something. When you go to Matthew 7, don't start right there in 21 through 23. Go up all the way to verse 1, but you can go to verse 15. Because what Jesus is clearly describing are false prophets. And guess what? How you know they are false prophets by the fruit that they bear. And then on the heels of that, guess what he says? That many will come to me on that day and saying, Lord, Lord, didn't we do miracles and cast out demons in your name and so forth? And he says, I'll never knew you. So who are those who were never known by Christ? Those who never did the will of the Father, the false prophets that are in context right there. So in terms of worrying about your salvation, we are called in Second Peter chapter 1 quite clearly to make our calling and election sure. We are called to examine ourselves to see if we're in the faith and put our trust completely in Jesus because of his character and who he is. You've been listening to the Good Fight Radio Show brought to you by Good Fight Ministries. If you're blessed by this show and would like to partner with us, please consider visiting our Patreon page at patreon.com goodfight. Or you can write to us at P.O. Box 2202, Simi Valley, California, 93062. Or call us toll free at 1-866-JC-TRUTH. That's 1-866-528-7884. We hope you'll tune in next time on the Good Fight Radio Show.